0: we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Hello out there in Radioland. Welcome to a special miniature episode of One Track Mind that I'm creatively calling OTM Mini. I am Ryan Luis Rodriguez, your wonky yet affable host. Since this podcast is a bi-weekly affair, I've been brainstorming ways to make it weekly and the best solution was, yes, mini-episodes, little lunchable versions of the podcast. As we progress, we'll cover specific discs and try to cover the various bonus features in under 10 minutes, but first up, I want you, the listener, to understand me, the host, a little better. That's right, it's time for some q and A. I've solicited questions on the podcast's various social medias, and I think I've culled Some solid cues. Ultimately, you'll decide whether or not you learned anything, but if you haven't, the fuck does that matter? You didn't pay for it or anything. Anyway, first up, quote, You frequently give gentleman reviews, but do your scores ever differ drastically from critical ones? Unquote. The asker of this question is referring to my tendency on Reels of Justice to call something a gentleman's 1 to 10, which I flat out stole from the guys at Blank Check and has now become part of the casual vernacular on ROJ to the point that even guests know what I'm saying when I bring it up. But yes, my scores uh, frequently diverge from the critical consensus. I would even argue, in fact, that when my views and the consensus are equal, it's usually the exception that proves the rule. Like, I I seriously doubt that many respectable critics would give Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, or Valley Girl, or Colossus The Forbin Project 5 stars, or A Gentleman's 10 to use the parlance, but I do. And I don't regret it, even if I might take shit for it when this episode drops. I try to assign rankings before I even look at what other people have given it because I'm so impressionable that it it might work its way into my thought process, and I'm not always able to overcome that, but I do my best. It's all terribly subjective, but ultimately isn't that what makes cinema special? I think so. The next question piggybacks on this, so let's move on. Quote, Is there a science or method to your letterboxed rankings, or movie rankings in general? Is it based on how you feel, or do you have a rating system? Unquote. There is a method of sorts in that I purely go by my gut. If something made an impact, or I found something revelatory, I will rank it higher than something I overall enjoyed, even if they ultimately shake out similarly. If I find myself thinking about a film sometime after I've watched it, uh, I will frequently go back and bump up the rating. I try to avoid handing out five stars, except for the three movies that I just mentioned, because I want to save it for something special, but I'm not averse to jumping the gun and handing it out. Strangely enough, though, there is a method of sorts. Three stars or higher are considered movies that I like, although there are three-star movies that are fine, and three-star movies that get the iconic letterboxed heart. I tend to look at it as one star is terrible, two stars, not good, but of some interest, three stars, good, three and a half, very good, four stars, great, five stars, one of my favorites. And I do my best to hold all films that I watch to the same standard. So if I give a movie four stars, it has to fit the rubric and be as good as other movies I've given four stars. And if it isn't, If by comparison it doesn't match up, it instantly gets downgraded. I always want to make sure that I'm playing fair, that genre movies are given the same consideration as prestige fair, that just because one is of a quote-unquote disreputable status, it doesn't get brushed under the rug. Next up, quote, Which country or countries do you think have contributed the most to world cinema, and why? Unquote. Ooh, great question, nameless person. I had shamefully been averse to basically anything foreign until relatively uh, recently, with the last decade and a half out of 37 years on this godforsaken planet, mainly because I'm mildly dyslexic and have issues focusing on the narrative of a film while I'm reading subtitles. And I also didn't really gain a proper appreciation of the full breadth of cinema until I started the former version of this podcast, The Coolness Chronicles, having previously had uh, arbitrary, binary opinions that boiled down to, this is a film, this is a movie. It's something that was drilled into me from a particularly important teacher of my film history class in senior year of high school, and shaking that, was like undergoing deprogramming after being part of a brainwashed cult for years. I'm not the same person I was when I started podcasting, and, in fact, uh, a lot of the movies that I disparaged when I started, I've done a complete 180 on, most notably in the Roger Corman episode, when I was so angry by the worst of his filmography that it colored how I looked at his good films, and it wasn't until I gained a deeper appreciation that I was able to shake that deprogramming and completely pull my head out of my ass. I still cringe thinking about my rules for enjoying a film, which, to reference high school again, usually meant, how close does a film come to a reality that I recognize, which is a completely arbitrary and silly rubric to have, whereas now, I don't really care about plausibility or adherence to my life. If you can show me pretty pictures, I'm more than willing to set that shit aside. But let's get to the substance of your question. World cinema. Thanks to my obsession with the Criterion Collection, I've gained a much more profound appreciation lately, so I think I can answer this without misstepping. I think. Especially lately, I've been getting into Iranian films, uh, simply because it's a world that I've never been to, And especially as world politics are concerned, it's definitely a subset of voices that need to be heard from, you know, from the greats like uh, Abbas Kiristami or Jaffa Panahi, uh, No Bears, for instance, being a recent film that I adored, or Where is the Friend's House? But I've seen so little that I can't really have an objective opinion as of yet. The countries that I've spent the most time with have to be France... Italy, and Japan. Germany, to a lesser extent, mostly due to my discovery of Rainer Werner Fassbender and Werner Herzog, uh, Poland, Russia, and Spain as well, India with Satyajit Ray, but with France, you have Varda, Renoir, Truffaut, Brassant, Godard, Tati, Demi, and my personal favorite, Melville. When I think of art films, I think of France and the Young Turks in the 1960s helped break apart the conventions and styles of the medium. And stitch it back together through distinctive aesthetics. And Japan, you have perhaps the most accomplished and wide-ranging director, Kurosawa. Masters like Ozu and Miyazaki, Korida, Seijun Suzuki. There's an elegance there and often a brashness. Stylized but often understated. But... Honestly, I think you kind of have to throw it to Italy. Italy bounces back and forth between prestige and genre, and if you can jump from Antonioni to Argento, Leone to Visconti, Fellini to Bava, you have something special. Italian compositions are so striking, and the talent pool so diverse, that I've often found myself in awe more often with them than in other countries. But this is all just a process. I'm still figuring it out as I go. Next up, a two-pronged question. Quote, is there any cinematic creator you are particularly excited about seeing growth in the industry, and is there any technology you're excited about within the industry? Unquote. Interesting two-pronged question. In terms of cinematic creators, I am fascinated to see what Steven Soderbergh continues to do as he's constantly retiring, then throwing his hat back in the ring, jumping from film to television and back again, making films for streaming services and then theaters, not making any delineation between what goes where. It's just kind of on a whim. And he's constantly refining his style and growing as an anti-formalist, that even when he's not 100% on the ball, he's never boring. Perhaps that's a swerve of an answer, but it's my podcast, I'll do what I want. As for technology, in the past 20 years, I have gone from a proponent of digital cinema to someone dedicated to preserving film first, whether it's projection or actually shooting something on celluloid, because it feels precious and rarefied. But there is an emerging technology that I'm interested in, and it's the volume uh, better known as StageCraft. Now, StageCraft does away with green screens, which is great, because to me, it's the ugliest way to shoot a film possible. Actors have to constantly be told what they're looking at without being able to visualize it in their minds. It, it honestly sounds like a, like a nightmare, like a logistical nightmare. Instead, StageCraft is a 360-degree uh, circular panel of LED screens that project finished visual effects and sets, and can be manipulated through real-time gaming engines. And if we're going to progress even further through this uncanny valley, this studio-mandated IP market saturation, this seems to be something that I can grow to appreciate, or at least be fascinated by. Next up, quote, Is there a film from your childhood that you credit for your love of cinema? Honestly, I don't really stand by most of the non-animated films I experienced at my younger ages, so I'm going to have to half answer your question by pivoting a bit. Believe it or not, because it's been mostly forgotten since its release, but Confessions of a Dangerous Mind was like being hit in the chest with a shotgun. It made me pay closer attention to composition and lighting, and mise-en-scene, to borrow a pretentious term, and suddenly I wanted all movies to look and feel like that. Similar examples, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch-Drunk Love, I believe released that same year, 2002, and Hitchcock's North by Northwest, which I discovered on DVD at around the same time. Those were the gateway drugs of sorts. Another question, quote, they say art is political. Is there a film that challenged your worldview, changed your mind on a social stance, or otherwise opened your mind? Unquote. Well, something I've gradually learned is that all art is political. If you go out of your way to not be political, that act, in and of itself, is political. Movies that really unlock something or changed me Uh, Bowling for Columbine immediately comes to mind. I've since tampered my appreciation of it, but seeing it in high school was a seminal moment that awakened a part of me. Uh, I'm recommending it next week, but Monty Python's Life of Brian is a formative film, especially as I was souring against the concept of religion. Uh, George Clooney's Good Night and Good Luck is a powerful piece of cinema that completely knocked me on my ass. I'm, I'm sure there are many others that I, I just can't think of right now. And the last question for now, quote, which movie never fails to make you laugh? Unquote. Well, again, I'm recommending it next week, but Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a big one. Uh, Albert Brooks's Modern Romance. And perhaps the biggest one, especially now, is Arthur Hiller's The In-Laws from 1979. There's something about making a movie where the whole purpose is Peter Falk getting Alan Arkin to lose his mind and eventually be okay with it, that is just irresistible. And there's a car chase involving several U-turns, which I won't describe further to avoid killing the joke, that is one of the most perfect things I have ever seen. Okay, that'll do it for now. Stay tuned for a full-blown episode next week, and two weeks from now, the second part of this massive q and a as we continue the odyssey known as otm mini don't forget to check us out on the social medias at one track Mind podcast on x one that is the numeral one track Mind podcast on instagram one track Mind on blue sky we're on facebook and podchaser or send an email to for perhaps a future q and a to one track podcast at gmail.com. See you soon. Dawn, that's the end.